Hello, I'm Zeb Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, just last week, I launched a limited podcast series addressing how the COVID-19 pandemic is reframing healthcare in the US. In this limited series, I'm reaching out to interview future-facing healthcare leaders and entrepreneurs to ask two questions. How is the COVID-19 pandemic changing the way we're delivering healthcare, and how will COVID-19 reframe American healthcare for years to come? The situation is changing daily, so in order to share the remarkable insights from these interviews as quickly as possible, I'm going to be releasing a new episode every day or two this week and perhaps next week as well. And again, you can find all of these episodes under Creating a New Healthcare, the podcast on Shout Engine. Now, in this episode, we are incredibly fortunate to be speaking with a world-class expert, Dr. Paul Offit. Dr. Paul Offit is an internationally recognized expert in the fields of virology and immunology. He is the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine recommended for universal use in infants by the CDC, and it's credited with saving literally hundreds of children's lives each and every day. He's the director of the Vaccine Education Center and the professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Children's Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's also a professor of vaccinology at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. I've included an abbreviated list of his recognitions and awards in the show notes, but I'm not going to share them with you now. They're too lengthy, but they're beyond impressive. I have to tell you, I am so, so excited to share this interview with you. I found it to be hugely informative as well as inspiring and really very, very hopeful. What we'll cover in this interview will include a range of topics such as Dr. Offit's perspective on the surge curve and the issue of when we can uh, relieve some of the social distancing, the metrics he believes we should be paying more attention to, the three major lessons or reframes he believes we can learn from this current pandemic, his experts' thoughts on the amount of time it will take for us to create a vaccine, and uh, some of his concerns regarding the impact of our public health response on the social determinants of health, in particular the consequences of the decrease in family incomes. And so without further ado, Dr. Paul Offit. Paul, thank you for taking the time. I know you've been up since 4.30 this morning and working away and are so busy right now. Before we start with the questions, could you just give a high-level overview of your amazing career and the contributions you've made in healthcare? Sure. So I trained in pediatrics, then did a fellowship in pediatric infectious diseases, and then spent 26 years having the good fortune to be able to work with a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that created the strains that became the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech, a vaccine designed to prevent the virus rotavirus, which is a cause of fever vomiting, and diarrhea in young children. In the United States, that virus accounted for about 75,000 hospitalizations a year and about 60 deaths per year. But in the world, that virus accounted for about 200,000 deaths uh, at least, and as many as 500,000 total, so about 2,000 deaths a day. And so there was a tremendous interest in trying to create a vaccine to prevent it. And I was fortunate to be part of a team that did that. That vaccine was then licensed for all children in the United States in 2006. 
by the Food and Drug Administration. It was then recommended for all children in the world by the World Health Organization in 2013 and, and clearly is saving lives. So that's that was great. More recently, I've, I guess, sort of taken on the anti-vaccine movement through um, this vaccine education center that we created at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, as well as through sort of books that I've written and articles that I've written. So I'm definitely someone that the anti-vaccine activists don't like very much, which I take as a point of pride. And uh, that's pretty much what I do. Well, thank you. And again, I think, you know, many of us have really only been thinking about this issue of viruses and, you know, epidemics and, and pandemics for the past few weeks. And you've spent the past few decades not only thinking about it, but making just amazing contribution to saving lives here in the United States of children and lives of children across the country. So I just want to focus on on that and and just express tremendous gratitude. And it's awesome that you and your team and colleagues have been doing that. I, I actually trained at uh, University of Pennsylvania. I was a medical student there and spent many, many months at the Children's Hospital. And it was one of the most amazing experiences of my entire life and just saw doctors like you and nurses and, and teams working in, in just an amazing way. It was so inspiring and continues to inspire me even many decades later. So just want to thank you again. Let me ask you a question. If you don't mind, if we jump in, given your expertise, and this is not the typical sorts of dialogues I have, but before we get into the issues of how this has reframed healthcare, the pandemic that is, there's a lot of discussion right now about you know success. When will we know we have won, we've turned the corner, we could cease and desist from the social distancing and the sheltering in place and the lockdowns. And, and, you know, the economy is suffering. Individuals and families are suffering financially as a result of this tremendous social isolation impact on the social determinants of health, such as food security and basic hygiene needs and housing goods. So there's a lot of sort of unintended consequences as a result of the intervention. And so there's been a lot of discussion about flattening the curve and you know, I've seen lots of graphs and projections as, as others have. From your scientific perspective and, and just decades of experience in, in this world of epidemics and, and viral pandemics, what does success look like? How would you know and say that we would be winning? Right. So right now we're in this sort of exponential phase of growth of this virus. So for example, on March 26th, we had 1,000 deaths. On March 28th, two days later, we had 2,000 deaths. So that's a doubling time of two days. That's very, very fast. Today, April 1st, we have 4,000 deaths. So that means we went from 2,000 deaths to 4,000 deaths in four days. That's good. We're getting better. Um, if you look at Germany, Germany has a doubling time of five and a half days. Italy has a doubling time of eight days. They're clearly past their peak. Angela Merkel in Germany has said that once they get to a doubling time of 10 days, she thinks, and I think she's right about this, that the number of hospital discharges will vastly exceed the number of hospital admissions, which is to say we flatten the curve, which is to say we now aren't going to be overwhelming the healthcare system anymore. So I think that's what's the, what is something one should watch out for. We're at 4,000 deaths now. When do we get to 8,000 deaths? Hopefully it'll be longer than four days. Hopefully it'll be five, six, seven days. So we'll know that we're continuing to move in the right direction. And I just wish that we had a clear federal policy that reflected that. I think when you hear, for example, the governor of Virginia say, we're going to lock down until June the 10th, you may not need to lock down until June the 10th. It's very demoralizing to say that. And it would right. be nice if the government could give us things to look for to know that we're doing better. So you're talking, when I hear you, what I hear is you're saying, let's take a data-driven 
mathematical scientific approach rather than just put down dates and why do you think that we're seeing you know politicians and leaders talk about dates rather than saying let's let's just follow the data and use that to make these decisions i don't know i mean initially when president trump said april 12th i think he was trying to provide some sense of hope that there is yeah. an end to this and we we're going to be able to get out of this we're all going to be attending easter services i think he said and that was hopeful. Then he changed April 30th, and now it's unclear. I, I just think it would help if he were to say, here's what we're using to make that decision. Here's what we're looking at to know when that date's going to be. I mean, I think the April 12th date is wrong, but he may not be wrong and that we may, by April 12th, clearly start to see evidence that we've gone from doubling times of two days to four days to six days or eight days, in which case we're doing better. I really mm -hmm. do think actually in the next three weeks or so, we're going to start to see that we're past our peak. But again, that's all knowable, and we will be able to generate the data to know it. I just hope the American public can, can see what that evidence is. Mm -hmm. I do want to ask this question about reframing, you know, currently how we're thinking about healthcare and reframing how it's going to change for the better. As someone, again, who's an expert in virology and vaccines, how do you think this is going to change, hopefully, the data-driven mindset? Sorry about the dog, but that's the realities of life. <laughs> right now, dogs and kids and everything else. But how do you think that this is going to change how we think about even the idea like, you know, you've already changed my thinking, because now I'm thinking, wow, maybe that's the metric I should be looking at doubling time. And that would be just such a helpful thing to know, you know, what are the metrics we should be tracking, just like they have, you know, we know we have financial metrics that we track on a daily, hourly basis. And we know that they're important. You know, we need scientists like you and medical experts to tell us, here's the medical public health metrics we should be looking at. And I think to your point, that would give us a lot more hope than just random or just other messages that are well-intentioned, but not backed by science and data. So how do you think this has already changed how we think? And how do you think this is going to change how we think and act in the future in healthcare and public health? Well, I think it certainly taught us that uh, novel viruses can bring up anywhere in this world. What I'd like to think is going to happen is that China and other countries will make sure that they are better players or more faithful players in the international game. The fact that there was a, there had to be a whistleblower to say that there was a novel virus that was killing people in Wuhan uh, shouldn't have to happen. That information should have been immediately made available to everyone else in the world so we could prepare for what eventually did happen. Secondly, I think that when the H5N1 bird flu virus raised its head in 2005, Dr. Tony Fauci, who was still then head of NIAID, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, he put in place a pandemic preparedness program. He put in place manufacturing facilities that could respond quickly, testing facilities that could respond quickly, and tests that could be made quickly. That was all dissembled at the beginning of this administration. I'd like to think that's a lesson that we've learned here. I think we've also just generally learned how we are influenced by each other. I think now we, we finally really do understand, one, the importance of vaccines and the importance of how viruses can spread. I mean, we're scared to death of this virus. And it's interesting because typically when you're scared to, to death of viruses, it's for one of three reasons. Either one, it disproportionately affects and permanently harms children, like polio. Two, that it's uniformly fatal, like rabies. I mean, if you have signs and symptoms of rabies, you're dead. Um, or three, that it is particularly disfiguring, like smallpox, which would cause one-third of the people who were infected to die. It would cause permanent scarring on your face. It would often cause blindness. I mean, that was a fear disease. This really is none of those. This is a 
a winter spring respiratory virus that can kill people by causing pneumonia, which no different in many ways than influenza, which is also a winter spring virus that can kill people by causing pneumonia, and, and in this country this year has been estimated to kill between 25,000 and 60,000 people. Somehow we don't seem to, to care about that so much. There are certainly a lot of people who don't get an influenza vaccine because they don't think this is a big deal. Maybe this will help them realize that this is, is a big deal now. I, I hope that's true. I hope we now see vaccines as a hero of this story. It's interesting that the most downloaded movie right now is Contagion, um, where if you've ever gotten a chance to see that movie, the hero of that movie is vaccines. People can't wait for vaccines. And that's, I think, true here also. Wow. Those are some really, really brilliant insights. And I just want to kind of go back over this. And I have to say, I hear you and feel this as being very, very hopeful. It almost, you know, frames this up as not as bad as it could have been, not as bad as we think it is. And the silver lining here is this, this could be a warning for us to do the things that you talked about. Number one, what I heard you say was that this novel virus could hopefully induce us to be more accepting of novel thinking. So when voices come out, not to stifle them, when divergent thinking and voices come out, but actually to accept them and to talk about them and to discuss them in a global way. The second thing I heard is that it is so critically important to have a pandemic preparedness program in place as we did before, but we did not have it as, as I understand it, really ready for this pandemic. It wasn't as robust as it was, and maybe you could fill in the details. I don't even know if it was completely taken down or not. And third, what I heard you say is that, and I was maybe reading in between the lines here, but the idea that we really need to have more connectivity, national and global connectivity in this day and age when the technology and the communications are so sophisticated, we, we could have literally communication that happens in terms of milliseconds. You know, we could have identification of a spread of viruses, of concern of viruses, of changes in behavior in anticipation or during viruses. All that can be set up as part of this pandemic preparedness program. I know that there are concerns about privacy and whatnot, and you don't want to take those lightly. But those are the three things I heard. The, the novel virus causing us to be more accepting of novel thinking, the pandemic preparedness, and the connectivity that we need in order to be ready for this and to act if something like this or something worse happens in the future. Is that right? And would you add something to those three? No, I think that summarized it well. Thank you. Brilliant. I've not heard that sort of clarity. Why aren't you talking on national television? Because I do think you have really profound insights. To me, this is such a very clear, objective, uh, clearly medically and scientifically backed perspective. I don't know. Maybe I need a better agent. Just kidding. Uh, I mean, I was on <laughs> CNN uh, a few days ago, so briefly. So yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe my day is coming. I don't know. And you are a medical expert. And one of the things here is that a lot of uh, medications, I think a lot of people are concerned about this. In fact, I've, I've heard Dr. Fauci talk about this repeatedly in the last few weeks, that a lot of new medications or treatments, you know, being published, even five patients in China. And we're, we're publishing this now in, in journals like JAMA, which never would happen before. And I understand the need for it, the desire, the good intention behind it. But there is a concern that it can actually cause more harm than good. And so from your infectious disease perspective and your scientific perspective, what do you say about these? Yeah, I, I think the worry is we're panicked. We are terrified of this virus. And, and when you're panicked and terrified, you can cut corners. 
for example, when you, you look at a drug that was promoted by President Trump when he said that he thought hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin were going to be the greatest breakthrough in medical history, that was statement was made without having any evidence that this drug works. And I think that when someone is sick, there's a perception that you can't hurt them, that if they're doing badly and continuing to do badly, that you should just try something and, and see whether it works. But when someone's sick, one of three things can happen. They can do better, they can stay the same, or they can do worse. You can make them worse. You can make sick people worse. And so if you're going to promote a drug like hydroxychloroquine or these antivirals like remdesivir or flavipiravir, you need to make sure that you do the proper studies to show that it does work, knowing that you can hurt people. And, and I think that's what we need. And that's what's happening now. Now there are prospective placebo-controlled studies to see whether the, the medications that I just mentioned are of value because they can make you worse. And I think that's what people need to understand. You know, the companies will often use the term compassionate use, that they provided a drug under a compassionate use protocol. The FDA doesn't use that term anymore. They use the term extended use or expanded use. They don't say compassionate use because if you give something to somebody and it actually doesn't work or worse, that it does hurt them, there's nothing compassionate about that. And that's why you need to do the studies. Oh, that's really helpful. Is there any other issue as, again, from your just unique purview, are there any issues or questions where we're not asking or not addressing that you're, you're scratching your head and saying, yeah, we're talking about this, but we're not talking about that. So I'm just kind of curious. Well, yeah, I think that it's that second wave of pandemic that we're not talking much about. You're starting to hear it a little bit creep into the, uh, the newscast. But right now, there are estimates that 20% of the workforce, American workforce, could lose its jobs. That's 35 million people. If 35 million people lose their jobs and it takes a while for them to get those jobs back, that will lead to homelessness. It has to. It always has. And, and homelessness has all of its attendant social and medical consequences, like crime, domestic abuse, child abuse, violence, uh, depression, suicide, etc. And, and that is also a public health issue. And that also needs to be addressed by public health people. You can't have as a goal preventing all cases or all deaths from COVID-19. That's not realistic. What you're trying to do is just get past the curve, so-called flatten the curve, so the healthcare system is not overwhelmed. That's the goal. I mean, what's interesting to me, actually, is if you look over the last three weeks, the total number of American deaths, I mean, total deaths, not flu, COVID, or particularly, but everything, has gone from 55,000 a week to 45,000 a week. 10,000 people, fewer people, are dying every week over the last three weeks. Why? Because they're not driving cars. Therefore, they're not getting in car accidents. The rate of homicides is way down. So there you go. If you want to prevent car accidents, we can all just stay home. But again, there's a price to pay for that. And I think people know there's a price to pay for that. And so we, we're trying to find that middle ground, knowing there's no perfect balance. I mean, knowing that either choice that you make, when you start to bring people back to work, there may be a, a second wave, which I think would be a smaller second wave, but that may be true. Um, but you know, you can't ignore that second pandemic that's about to happen with this massive joblessness. That also will have its public health consequences. I just wish the public health people were talking about it more. You know, it's so fascinating that you say that. And again, I, I appreciate it so much that, you know, we do get focused on the here and now and the immediate and it's just human nature. But as you step back again, looking at those numbers and saying overall, there are less people dying from other causes. And 
the second wave of the pandemic. And it's interesting because you and I haven't talked about this at all. I mean, this is the first we've ever spoken and we've never really corresponded other than to set this conversation up. But I just published an article on LinkedIn that was called The Impact of COVID-19 on the Social Determinants of Health. And I don't have your numbers at hand, but I've been asking who is looking at these statistics? Who's, who's looking at this public health data on this exactly what you call, I call it the second wave of the pandemic. The issues of food insecurity, the issues of depression, social isolation, the issues of not being able to get medications, you know, a significant percentage of the population, particularly those over 65 or 70, who have a chronic disease, many of whom have two or more chronic diseases, who are fundamentally dependent on their diet, on their mental health, on taking medications. I wonder, and the question to you is, you know, how many weeks can it go by, you know, with these people not being attended to, you know, people with chronic kidney disease who are either on dialysis or pre-dialysis, people with COPD, pulmonary, severe pulmonary disease, people with severe diabetes, people with severe cardiovascular disease or at risk, who are uh, hypertension, et cetera. These are not problems that I think can go on for weeks or months unattended to. And I, I do worry that there's a second wave that may actually cause more harm and more deaths than the first wave. And I'm, I'm looking for the public health experts who can put some numbers to these. So I really appreciate what you say. And I'm curious what you think about that. I think that's exactly right and well said. And, and in addition, you know, to, I know that Jefferson uh, University Medical Center in Philadelphia is now delaying all sort of transplants. They're, you know, any sort of transplant that's not emergent, they're not doing. And so, you know, time goes by where people continue to suffer and you wonder how much. Yeah, I, I haven't seen anybody put numbers on that. I'm sure we will. I, I'm sure that in retrospect, a year or two from now, we are going to look back at what we did and see the mistakes that we made and the right things that we did. But I think right now, um, the learning is probably mostly going to be in retrospect. And we're just um, taking this current position, which is to, to prevent all possible COVID deaths. And, and I just think we need to consider this other part, which is not to say don't, don't shelter in place. Shelter in place, lock down until we're clearly past this curve, until we clearly flatten the curve. And when that happens, then we, we need to move. But we need to define what those terms are now because we need to, one, provide some level of hope. I, you know, when the governor of Virginia says June the 10th, that's really depressing. The other thing of interest mm. is... Um, I got a call from a friend of mine who was a pediatric a neuropathologist at CHOP, is now in a uh, assisted living facility in New Jersey. And she said, you know, we can't eat together anymore. We don't eat breakfast together. We don't eat lunch together. We don't eat dinner together. They just sort of bring us the, our, our food as if we're prisoners and we are not allowed any visitors, no visitors. She said, do you know what that's like for an older person to be isolated like that? It's enormously depressing. And I think, you know, you have to sort of, again, weigh relative risks. I mean, mm -hmm. if someone wants to visit this woman and is, is not symptomatic and is feeling good, I mean, it's, you know, mm -hmm. is that the wrong thing to do? It's, it's, it's hard because nursing homes certainly are a fragile institution. And that's where a lot of this, these problems have happened. But you can see there is another side to this. Thank you so much for that seriously empathetic and humanistic consideration of those who are in long-term facilities. They were already lonely places, and I think that now they're even more so. And, you know, I know it'll be studied in retrospect in the next, you know, two years or so we'll be unbundling this, but, you know, I work at Atrium Health here, you're at CHOP. What could we do now? I mean, I'm looking at interventions. I just got on the email this morning before we got on, and I, I was talking to colleagues and saying, look, we have to reach out to our vulnerable patients, our high-priority patients, you know, the top 1,500 patients in each doctor's panel of patients, those who have chronic diseases, those who are at risk of social determinants of health, of not getting their medications and not having enough food. You know, you're in West Philly. I know what that sociodemographic is like there. A lot of at-risk, vulnerable individuals and families. Let's not wait to study it. 
in addition to the immediate high priority COVID surge preparedness and treatments, et cetera, identification, all that sort of stuff, we are going to do these one, two, or three things right now to stem, to mitigate the second wave of the pandemic on the social determinants of health. What would you recommend? Right. So I think it sort of depends on the area. I'm sure that different states and districts and localities are different with regard to the degree which they've been hit here. Certainly rural Pennsylvania has not been hit hard by this because people live far, much farther apart. So their, their hospitals have not been hit as hard, but they're preparing. They're doing all the things that you've talked about, which is trying to limit care because they're so scared of being overwhelmed. When can you say that they're not being overwhelmed and that there's things are starting to get better, that they shouldn't worry and, and can, that they should make a list of all the things that they have been ignoring right now that have put people at risk uh, with a variety of chronic diseases and then prioritize them and then try and then start from the top and work your way down as things are getting, start to appear to be getting a little better. Um, because that's the other side of it, right? Our hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia right now, is at its lowest census ever. I mean, they have closed wards because they were so scared of being overwhelmed by this. Now, as it turns out, it's a children's hospital. So children generally aren't the ones who are in intensive care units and dying from this disease, not at all. So, I mean, it can happen, but it's rare. So in preparation, though, your point is that, that by doing this, we certainly have canceled all elective surgeries, including, as far as I can tell, transplants. Is that What's going to be the effect of that? And, and we should make a list and say when it is that we feel we can start to open things back up again mm. as quickly as possible. That's such a great point and one that we could miss and not think about. Any final thoughts or words before we sign off? And again, I can't thank you enough. I'm so inspired by you, by your career, by your contributions, and by your thoughts today in terms of what we need to be thinking about now and how this needs to transform how we make ourselves ready for and prepare for the second wave, the possibility of a surge in, in the fall and future epidemics and pandemics, which are certain to come. So again, can't thank you enough. By the way, quick question before you answer your final thought. What is the chance of this recurring in the fall? There's certainly a chance. I mean, this, this is the third novel coronavirus. The first two didn't. They were one-offs. SARS and MERS were basically a one-shot deal, and then they were gone. I think this might be different. I think it more likely to recur. In fact, it may continue through the summer. We'll see. I mean, typically, coronaviruses, human coronaviruses, which we've known about you know, since the 1960s, in which uh, probably accounts for 15 to 20 percent of the hospitalizations we have at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for respiratory diseases over the winter. Um, those are just winter spring viruses. They go away. This is not a human coronavirus. It's a bat coronavirus that has now entered the human population. And so we're, I'm not quite sure how it's going to act. Also, it causes a disproportionate, at least in children, amount of intestinal symptoms. I mean, we'll see children in our emergency department who, who solely have intestinal symptoms, and it's caused by this virus, which makes me think that there also may be a fecal oral root of spread, and therefore surfaces and hand washing become all the more important. So more like sort of neurovirus. And it may be, I think it's likely to be both roots of spread, but time will tell. <laughs> so the final thought is this. I think in terms of the future, I think we should prepare as if this virus is going to come back. Now, I don't think we'll ever have a level of herd immunity caused by natural infection that would significantly stop its spread. 
I don't think so. Uh, you have right now 4,000 deaths. Assume, if you assume a 1% mortality rate, that's 400,000 cases. If you assume a 0.1% mortality rate, that's 4 million cases in a population of 330 million. That's not enough to stop spreading. Remember in the old days when, when we all would get measles, I mean, at least I got measles when I'm a child of the 50s, every year measles would cause two to three million cases. It would cause 48,000 hospitalizations. It would cause 500 deaths. And it came back every year, even though a lot of people had antibodies uh, that were protective against measles. In fact, anybody who got a natural measles infection was protected for the rest of their life, yet that virus came back year after year. Obviously, the best way to induce this, to induce herd immunity, is with a vaccine. Then you can, can be assured that a large percentage of the population, hopefully 90% of the population, gets the vaccine that then can protect for years. And I think it would protect for years. But I think that the vaccine, even the so-called messenger RNA vaccine that is being touted by the administration as being something that could be scaled up and ready, you know, in 12 to 18 months, I think that is ridiculously optimistic. Uh, you know, you have to, you do have to do safety studies for, for this vaccine, mm -hmm. at preferably animal model studies, and you still don't know the dose. You still don't know the coral, immunological correlative protection. And if it were to be an mRNA vaccine, which seems to be currently leading the pack since it's already starting with human trials in Washington State, it would have to be delivered in a lipid moiety. And that has not been scaled up yet and would take in itself a year to scale up. So I think when they talk about 12 to 18 months, I just think that's not fair to the American public because I really do think if the timeline was five years, that would be best. Wow. Thank you for that factual, informative information. I think that changes my thinking on this. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, boy, I want to get this interview to my wife and have her as an infectious disease doctor hear you speak. You know, I know you've got a grand rounds at Yale later this morning. Again, can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us. It's such a delight and a pleasure to meet you. I've heard about you. And again, thank you. And I hope we have a chance to speak again sometime, maybe in the next two to three weeks. That, that would be great, Steve. It would be my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. So folks, that was the interview I just recorded this week with Dr. Paul Offit. I hope you benefited from this podcast episode. My goal is to provide you with useful information as well as encouragement and inspiration and to serve as a catalyst for reframing and transforming our healthcare system. And as I do each and every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are directly taking care of patients. You know, in these times, especially I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. My friends and colleagues, please, please, please take care of yourself. And please share this podcast series with your colleagues. This is Zev Neuwirth. You've been listening to a limited series on how COVID-19 is reframing healthcare in America, part of the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. Until next time, be safe and be well.